Hello and welcome to Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and I am so excited for this episode. The first episode I ever did was with Professor Luke O'Neill at the start of this global pandemic and I have him back to give us an update because we're moving through the phases and the virus is changing or is it or are we just changing how we think about it and how we're treating it for all things updated on the pandemic and the coronavirus and the treatment of it. Professor Luke O'Neill, welcome to the studio. Luke, the last time I was talking to you, I think it was April, maybe. Uh, have you found a cure yet? It's a long time ago now. It's yeah. April. It seems like month, years ago, doesn't it? It's strange. A lot's happened since then. I mean, the most amazing thing is the amount of science grows and grows and grows. You know, there's a famous Gary Larson cartoon when a, a kid in his classroom puts his hand up, my brain is full. I mean, the amount of knowledge is spectacular. Are you getting updates like daily? Every hour. I'm not joking, you almost. You know, and i got to read the damn things as well and keep up with this myself, of course. We work on one aspect, of course. I focus on that a lot. What's your aspect? An- anti-inflammatories, therapies, basically. Right, that's okay. my thing. But I'm watching it closely because you can't keep away from it, can you? I mean, the, vac- you know, the vaccine business, the therapeutic angles, all this stuff is coming out the whole time. It's un- un- unprecedented, of course. And I guess we only get the top notes. And as kind of civilians, we just want to know, is there a cure or at least is there a treatment so that I don't die of it? And those two, and then all of the details in between are kind of the scientists and Neffet to hold on to. That's but right, yeah. How are things progressing in terms of vaccinations and what we've learned since? Yeah, well, again, as I said before, that's massive. 190 vaccines now in development. It's an incredible number. 190. 190. Now, that beats ever for malaria. And malaria is a massive disease, remember. So you've never seen so many vaccines in development for any disease ever kind of thing. So, it's certainly a massive effort, of course it is. And all the big drug companies are involved. All the smaller biotech companies are in collaboration with the big drug companies. So every night I get an update on the vaccine thing, basically, you see, and what's happening and who's doing what. And and I mean, you know, all these all this effort has to yield, doesn't it, let's face it, because the vaccine is the answer, as we all know. So at the moment, there's five now out front. Okay. And these five are well down the track. I mean, they've jumped a few, obviously the horse racing and as they've jumped a fair few fences. We can see the finish line as well, by the way. Now, we know what's needed for a vaccine to work. The FDA, which is the big US agency, have said now, you need 70% coverage, which means 70% uptake. Now, that's a lot. Can so you what you mean? You need that? 70% of people to, to take, take it. it. Yeah. Yep. In a given country. I mean, it could be globally, it'd be great. But let's say Ireland. Yeah. If 70, 70% take it, that's a really good result. And 70% efficacy. Now, what that means is it's okay if doesn't work in some people. That will eradicate the virus, they're saying, in a given okay. community. So now we know what the end looks like, and that's a reasonable guesstimate, I think. And and five now have jumped two or three fences, and there's a fair few fences to go. And are they, like, climbing up in terms of efficacy, or how do we... How do you... How do you get over a hurdle yeah. in the hunt for a vaccine? Well, the, well, you start with animals, actually, initially, with, usually with macaques and some animal model, and you show protection in that. They're doing that in parallel, though, with humans, interestingly, because they're trying to go so fast. So you look for a good immune response to the vaccine, and that means measuring antibodies, which has in been... Healthy in healthy adults, in healthy humans, he- or people with the virus? No, healthy volunteers first, yeah. Okay. And then you measure antibodies. And you measure the T cells, they're the two key weapons. And, and the analogy I use there, Stephanie, is that the, the, uh, the T cells are like your, your, your jet, your bombers dropping bombs on the virus. Right. Uh, your antibodies are the soldiers in the field. You need both, really, and both work really well together. I think with this particular virus, you, could, you need a good T cell response, they reckon. So you need the bombers really to do the job. Because there is studies now saying that people don't, like some people who have had the virus and have been confirmed to have had it, do not have 
antibodies. That's the challenge. But everybody would have some kind of antibody response because that's what the immune system is built to do. So but the virus enough. is in your body and you make antibodies. And then the big question is, do they? what's the level of them, first of all? You need loads of them. Secondly, how long will they persist? And, and worryingly, I mean, several studies recently, one from Spain, uh, one from the UK, they wane. You know, over time, the antibodies wane. Now, the good part of that is if you have severe disease, you get a big immune reaction and you make more of them, you know. Okay. So it's about severity, really, and, and the severe so the we'll patient. So we'll say our frontline workers, let's say all of those nurses who got it, are those nurses now able to, like, treat people in hospital without PPE? Like, are those people now yeah. immune to it or do we have any st- we still don't know that's the curse of this in a way because it's still a work in progress it's very hard to do that study by the way because let's say you have COVID-19 and you get over it right Yeah. the question is can you get reinfected if the virus has gone away like it has in Ireland you're not going to get reinfected anyway You know, the virus has the virus gone away it hasn't gone away fully but it's well down I mean it, it's quite hard to pick up the infection in Ireland there's still a risk of it of course that's why we've got to be, be careful but the numbers are well down in Ireland the risk is, is, is much lower in Ireland at the moment so are you not concerned about Ireland at all at the moment. I'm very worried about the, the spikes. This is our next big concern because we're, it's, it's under control here at the moment, right? Our big fear now is surges and there are surges happening in Australia. In Israel, did you see this morning? Massive no. devastation in Israel. They're locking down parts of Israel again. What and they, parts? They, they, they had it right down, remember. They, they were down to 10 cases per day or less in Israel. Now it's back up to hundreds again. So so again, this can is happen that down here. to like, because I know in South Korea there, there was a nightclub incident that shot back up, but is Israel, like, is it to do with schools or hospitals or where are these clusters forming? Well, well again, the good, the good news is we know a lot more about where you pick up this virus, all these studies on where, where are the risky places, basically. Okay, where are they? Well, first of all, anywhere that's crowded with crowds, you know, and, and close contact, the three Cs, as we say, this, this still holds up. So, so close spaces, crowds, you know, and close contact, that's the riskiest thing you can do. If all three are there, massive risk. Now, where's the most famous place that an Irish pub ticks all three boxes, you see? Okay. Meat packing factories uh, is a big risk as well. It turns out accommodation is the big one. So any, anywhere there were like crowds of people living together in, in apartment blocks, that happened in Melbourne. By the way, there were nine tower blocks in Melbourne, three thousand people, huge outbreak in those tower blocks. But how? Say. Like, it's, I know it's a tower block, but like people live in individual apartments. So how is it spreading? Like I'll just tell on you. door handles and stuff. They know the elevators. Oh, wow, okay. That's one place where you can pick it up for definite, you see. so And they meet on the stairwells. There are people outside the tower blocks gathering, you know, this kind of thing. They reckon that's why those tower blocks were a risk factor. So, so we know where those dangers are. Now, at the moment in Ireland, we've less of those risk factors, it seems, unless we reopen the pubs, by the way. <laughs> that's a risk immediately. Do you think you they see. will? They shouldn't. I'll tell you that much, in my opinion. It's a danger that, unless the pub can mitigate. Yeah. Now, how you mitigate is a gale force wind blowing through the pub. Do you want to have your pint with the wind blowing at you, that's a question for the consumer, I suppose. But you could mitigate with certain measures in pubs. So beer gardens are less dangerous. Than Perfect. Outdoors. So pubs could do it, you know, yeah. if, if they observe certain things. But I think, it, let's sit this out a bit longer. Right. We want to get this right down. Let, let's try and aim to get this virus down as low as we possibly can. And you can imagine if there's a pub open somewhere and we get a spike in a pub and we get 10, 15, 20 cases tracked to that pub that's what's happening in Israel that's happening in Melbourne that'll cause consternation you see yeah. and then you worry oh good god it could be 100 people 200, 300 and then we, we go back into a, a difficult situation so, so at the moment I, I'd be saying let's keep the pubs closed as, unless you can mitigate very strongly against it and our other places so they found out that apart, so if so sorry going back to Israel if I'm in an elevator and I have COVID 
and I get out of the elevator and walk into my apartment and then you get into the elevator. Is it just like hanging out in the That's air? That's the fear. Yeah, yeah. So the other big the big development, of course, is this aerosol spread. Now, that, that was kicking around when we spoke before, I think. That, that In other words, you can breathe it out. Yeah. You don't need to cough it out, right? And when you breathe it out, it's a little aerosol and it just hangs in the air for hours. That's what they've shown. There's one study showing someone just breathing out the virus. You can detect it like nine metres away in the air and it's just hanging there for three hours, you see. So you walk into the elevator, you breathe it in, now the virus is in your body. That's why aerosols are such a big concern. But if that's the case, then sure, what's the point of two metres social distancing? Well, that was always semi-arbitrary. Did you know the study on two metres in the 1930s when they began doing those kinds of things? Yes, a few years ago. And that wasn't even COVID-19 because that was a new virus. Now, it's reasonable to be socially distancing. Remember, it's good to have two metres. Let's put it that way. The problem is air circulation. So if, if the air is stagnant, yeah, it'll hang in the air. You know, if you have a breeze blowing, and it could be air conditioning, it could be ventilation, it'll blow away. But will it not blow into your face then? Well, it'll. That's the risk, I suppose. But the thing is, it gets diluted with the air as well, so the My risk goes down. Is this? Know? She works. Uh, she doesn't work. She sails, and she was back sailing this weekend. And one of the instructions in the fight against COVID is never to be downwind of anyone else. But you're. Someone has to be That's right. downwind. Wear a mask. Now, yeah. you see, if, if the WHO, it's about to do this, I predict they will change their guidelines on this. The WHO hasn't officially said it's, it's in an aerosol yet. They say okay. it might be, looking at the data. The data is pretty compelling. 239 scientists sent a letter last week. WHO saying, wise up, it's an aerosol. So if they make that judgment and it's a clear statement, what that means is masks become even more important everywhere almost, not just in public transport. Every situation where there's people, you need to wear a mask. Secondly, ventilation becomes key. And then for schools is a big question. Our schools are not ventilated in Ireland. No, nobody really built much ventilation into schools. Certainly not, not at the spe- specification need for this. I don't know. There was a serious draft in high school. <laughs> we'll draft. <laughs> You've got a pain in your neck. Did you the draft? That's right. That's good. That's the school to be in then because that, that, that circulates the air gets blown away, you know. So be, do you think if we do reopen, do you think they will reopen schools? I think they have to. I mean, yeah. it's such an important thing. In fact, if I was the Taoiseach, um, I'd be looking at two or three things really what are they? up close in person. Schools is, has to be in the top three because if the schools stay closed, all kinds of knock-on consequences. The economy is affected. People can't go back to work. Damage to school kids. We know it's damaging for kids to be out of school. So I've been doing everything in my power and introduce mitigation as much as you can. How would you do schools. it? But again, there's, there's very strong guidelines. The CDC in America have issued a, quite a detailed document how to reopen your school. And it involves things like distancing, of course. It does hand washing. The usual things are there. Ventilation is part of it as well. Mask wearing is part of it. For kid, students kid, or kid, teachers? Kids in bubbles, teachers. Kids in bubbles? Kids in bubbles. What that would mean is you, you might work back at a school for four hours a day in your own bubble. You know, you wouldn't oh, okay. mix kids. <laughs> not mixing actual it, Not bubbles. literally in bubbles. <laughs> mixing of kids wouldn't be good. You know, avoid mixing in canteens. There's a list that's tough because these guidelines go on forever, you know. Yeah. And of course, the teachers are going, well, look, we're trying to do our job and how do we follow these guidelines? But you'd be full of absolute laser focus on, on, on following those guidelines such, such that the schools can reopen, you know. And just because the economy is reopening, like, in in some ways, we've come so far since I last spoke to you. And then in other ways, like, it's still as much of a threat. Like, if I'm on the Lewis today, it's as much of a threat to me today as it was back in March. So should we be, like, should we be, and I know we should be supporting the economy, but like, 
I don't know where where capitalism meets public health. It's an interesting little Venn yeah. diagram. This is the trouble with this. It's a massive clash, isn't it? And you can see both sides. Remember, if you're a yeah. politician, it's tough because you're trying to listen to the experts and listen to the economic imperative as well, and trying to come to a decision. And the science isn't precise enough to allow them to make a definitive judgment. Yeah, that science is getting better, though. Remember, now if they ignored the stuff I've just been talking about, which where, where the science is telling us these things it'll be at their peril because it will put the Irish people at risk, you see. So so you've got to take on board all this expert advice as best you can, complicated and all as it is, weigh that up against the economic bit because economic difficulties create health problems as well, remember. So you're trying to get the balance right between the two. So it's not easy by any means. But what we've learned, though, there are ways to try and keep the economy functioning in the face of this virus. Now, what's changed since April is the viral count has gone down, remember. So it's less risky to be out and about, you know? Yeah. That's good. But is that only for a period of time? Well, that's just a, that's a focus number one would say be schools. That's in no particular order. Focus two is the risk of a surge or a spike, as we call it. See, a surge is, means the thing's out of control. It's like a wave is crossing over the country. Right. It's more spikes, they call these things. Spikes or outbreaks is the old-fashioned name. Little pockets where it goes up, right? What do we do to try and stop that? And then secondly, if it does happen, how do we lock it down? Now, Melbourne, it got so out of control, Stephanie, that this is that Melbourne tried to control it by contact tracing. The numbers got too big and there were clusters in several places. They couldn't do all the contact tracing and they had to shut down. Most of Melbourne is now closed for six weeks, just like we were closed now. Same, almost the same level of stringency, you see. So it becomes how do you now spot the spikes and put the fire out in that particular area? That's do you the think that they're focus. doing enough in that regard, like with the app and... It's good. Yeah, the app, the app has been downloaded by a million people or something. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. All checking it every day, I suppose. That's a good sign, I think. Um, it's the contact tracing, isolating protocol. We've got to make sure that's as good as it can possibly be. On, on a more positive side, South Korea are very good at this. A good example, that they'd outbreaks linked to nightclubs in South Korea. They managed to lock it down. They tested 57,000 people, can you believe, Stephanie, in South Korea? Or traced them, you know, and ch- yeah. checked up on them. In the end, maybe 250 cases were shown. But it took testing of 57,000 people, you see. So it's not not a trivial I just don't think that if that happened here, people would do it. Already people are not using the app because it's wasting their phone battery. They're not going to their doctor with symptoms because they don't want to be out of work. Now, obviously, a lot of people are being very sensible, but it's those few outliers. Like this all started because one person got infected in China. Like we don't need this to be loads of people one person can mess this up for us that's the terrifying statistic one person you get to 12 million isn't that incredible that started with that single person and what we've learned over the past two months is highly contagious a single person can infect 150 people in the wrong room with the wrong ventilation that, that's how contagious this is so you're dead right if one, one person who isn't a, you know, obeying the, the guidelines could infect 100 people they'll go on and infect another 200 through, back, back to where we were again all that time is now lost remember that we've gained so so you do need social responsibility. Keep telling people the whole time. The public messaging is key. You know, I mean, the media keep advertising every two minutes. We're sick of these ads on the radio, are we? But, yeah. but still, it's essential, you know, because that's the way to keep people on board. And and you can't blame people either. We're all sick to death of this, aren't we? Let's face it. Yeah. So, so how, how do you keep compliance up? I thought the, the prime time... Um, two-part documentary was superb. That reminded people how severe this is, the disease. Yeah. Because people forget, because obviously people are distracted by other parts of their lives. So it's very tough to keep compliance, I suppose, and keep people reminded of how serious it is. That's a key, that's a key challenge. And do you think that if people wore masks and kept socially distant and washed their hands, that it would be fair enough for them to just live normal lives and go about their day? 
huge effects. And in fact, the mask business, as we know, has evolved over the past four or five months, hasn't it? Let's face it. And yeah. in America, look what's happening. It's mandatory mask wearing now in public, remember. I think 14 states have made it now illegal if you're not wearing a mask in public. The masks, if we all wear them, superb. 99% decrease in transmission. So it's a great weapon to use. People aren't wearing a mask in Ireland. I mean, I was, I, they are on the dart, by the way. I'm not, I come in every morning on the dart's great. I'd say it's 80%, 90% now, which is really good. Yeah, I came in on public transport today as well, and it was about 90%. Yeah. Um, but I find it difficult. Like, I'm a bit, I'm much less maskadaisical, I call it. I'm much less maskadaisical than I was. I have it going into Tesco. Copyright that phrase. I have That's it. great. <laughs> but I have it. Um, I, there are times, I don't know whether I should be wearing it. Um, when I'm walking around, like sometimes I see people with the mask under their chin and I'm like, sure, what use is that? But then when I come out of Tesco, I'm like, well, I'll just put it under my chin now until I go into the next place that's yeah. indoors. Like, yeah. what should I... It's a slow process. I mean, I think what's happening with masks is it's ramping up, which is great, first yeah. of all. It's still not high enough, but it will be, you see. I think I'm confident <laughs> it'll improve. But I was in Tesco's just across the road there, and uh, again, there was nobody really except me and a couple of other people, you know. So we're not getting the message, really. I mean, I mean, we've got to get to a stage where mask wearing is almost natural. Is know, it sort of all. like every time you cross the threshold from outdoors to indoors, you put on your mask? Well, I wear them all the time. Out, outdoors now anyway and yeah. one reason is to show people um, we're all wearing masks it kind of begins to normalise it a bit mm -hmm. uh, the risk of catching a virus off someone outdoors is much lower you know because you're walking and so on you're not in close contact with someone for 15-20 minutes are you so so the risk is low but if we all begin to wear them all the time it'll, it'll definitely help you see and it's another weapon to use and what is what is the developments around asymptomatic trans, uh, transmission and like how, like, is the virus, you said the last time that it, it mutates, is it becoming less dangerous? I see a lot of more cases, but a lot less deaths, it seems. Yeah, there's no evidence for it changing, let's put it that way. So okay. that, that's great science there, Stephanie. So there's people taking viral samples all over the world and looking at the RNA sequence. You can just sequence the genetic material and yeah. compare them to each other and see if it's changing. There's not much evidence of change. If there is change, it's very slow, you know. There's I think something like, so it's um, our treatment of it that's changing. Let me get the number for you. I think there's 30 million letters in its code, 30 million. You can read them all with a machine. Isn't that fantastic? But it's still... It's one, one or two change a week and the virus is tiny, you know. Right, okay. So it's pretty slow. Now that might change and they may find one that's a bit different. There are... The odd study is coming. Oh, we have found a slightly different one, you see. So let's see if that's true and how common that is. And that's being watched very closely because if the virus mutates into a more dangerous form, can you believe it? We'd all be in bits then. And this has happened. 1918 flu, remember, mutated and came back much more dangerous the second time. And did then, it come back? Like, did it go away, mutate and then come back? Or did it continue and mutate as it I think they got infected. it under control. So in other words, they began to use social... Now, in those days, they didn't know what a virus was. Right, Nobody had okay. seen a virus. You know? yeah. It took the 1930s before electron microscope was invented so to see one. what did they think was happening? They knew it was infectious. They knew it was obviously caused by a microbe. Cause, but that, this is 1918. We knew about microbes then. And you could see some down a microscope. Bacteria, of course, could be yeah. seen with microscopes. But viruses are too small. So they had to invent a very powerful microscope. It's called the electron microscope to see. The first virus, I think, was a plant virus to be seen, actually, by the, with the eyes, you know, mm -hmm. using a microscope. They knew it was infectious. And they thought it was a bacteria. Of course, initially, maybe a new species of bacteria. Area. They did begin to think it was a virus because they used filtration amazingly to figure how small the thing was. So they mm -hmm. knew it was something very small. So they kind of knew it was something that was pathogenic. And then they got under control through social distancing and quarantine, the, like, like we're doing, you know, and it began to go away. 
And then in the winter, of course, flu was more of a winter-based virus. Second wave, much more virulent. And then they realised that's mutated. And now we've, they've got, um, it's great science here, they dug out corpses, can you believe it, who had died and got the virus out of them and showed it had mutated. Oh, my God. And they could infect mice with that virulent and showed it was more dangerous. You know, so this, the third wave, then, it got less virulent. So do we need to, like, be, is there an extra something we need to do during winter? Or do we just need to continue what we are doing? I just, winter to me, I just have this image of fogged up windows on a bus and a dart and everyone bumping off you and the walls dripping with sweat. And I just can't deal with that. That's exactly it. And we all go indoors, remember. You're spending 80% of your time indoors now. And the windows are closed. And the virus loves the indoors thing, remember. So that's my third thing if I was the government, prepare for winter. How? Now, the UK are doing a great job at the moment, Stephanie, by the way. If you look at what the UK are doing now, the science is fantastic there. I hate complimenting they're, they're, the UK. Well, it's all the things <laughs> I'm Well, I, I, I train there. I spent seven years. I've I got to give them credit. Okay, go on. That's what give I got my PhD. So, uh, so I do love them, really. Uh, but they're fantastic scientists in the UK. The best in Europe, I'll tell you, for some of these things. And, and that's why they were so horrified what happened there. And yeah. the scientists are as well, by the way, because they weren't listened to. You see. But they've produced a very good document preparing for the winter. Right, how to get ready for this. Now, again, the fear is it'll go up because of the winter because we're all indoors. Mm-hmm. More worrying, flu will coincide with it. That puts massive pressure on the hospitals. Because so should we be getting flu vaccines? Absolutely. And this morning, I was just told you, I was meeting Scott and Tala, they're now getting the vaccine rolled out already for people because that will vaccinate against the flu and they have a double punch. And they can predict already kind of how many end up in hospital with the flu and add on top of that. Now, the other thing that will put pressure on people with the flu will think they've got COVID-19 oh and they haven't. And everybody starts getting tested and that mightn't be necessary, this kind of thing. So th- now they are they're well aware of this basically and they're trying to get ready for it. But that, that's the next thing I'd focus on. How do we get ready for the winter with this virus? And is it about hospital preparedness or us getting ready for the winter? Like, should we be getting... Well, more blankets so we can leave our windows open. <laughs> Multi-level. Again, it's complicated, isn't it? So wear masks. That's the first thing, right? right? <laughs> Make sure when we get to September, October, the mask compliance is high. Again, it's a weapon. And it'll stop flu as well, by the way. That's great. Um, secondly, then you get the hospitals just, you know, make sure the ICUs are ready because there will be an increase in cases, the PPE, the staffing, all this kind of stuff, you know. And then, as, as we've just said, the mitigation process to make sure that's good as well. So that would mainly be ventilation, though, by the way. And that's, that's going to be challenging. I don't know how that's going to play out. But How do you feel about us doing all of that preparedness and also at the same time leaving our airports open for... Americans. Well, well, you see, that's the other shocker, isn't that? Let's face it. I mean, the only way this will go up in Ireland now is through travel. That's as simple as that. So now we it's get so to, low in the community. Yeah, so now we get to item number four on the list, which is the airports and the borders, right? And that's got to be absolutely laser focused on that. And what's the best way to control that? Now, again, you can't lock up the country forever. We've got to live with this virus. I really believe in that. The vaccine could be two years away. So what are we going to do? Now, there's the green countries. Fantastic idea. There'll be bridges, you know. In other words, if, if a part of Europe has the same level of virus as us, it's like going to Kerry or Donegal anyway, and you can allow for travel. Yeah. Then you worry about the airports being a source of contamination, of course. So what are the measures there to make sure all the hygiene and all that kind of stuff is in place? So you begin to think about that. And of course, we're in the EU, so we have to follow EU rules, I suppose, and allow travel to happen. Like Germany now, there's a German scientist in my lab. He's going home, you see, to see his family. He can go straight to Germany now. They've said Ireland's fine, you know, no yeah. quarantine. He gets to Germany, visits his family. 
if it was a situation now he has to quarantine and he goes back to Ireland, remember, <laughs> that's a strange thing, you know. When yeah. he flies back into Ireland again at the moment, anyway, there's no air, air bridge with Germany. Unless now. he flies into Belfast. Well, that's the other stupid thing, isn't it? The highest order, Christ. I mean, you just get the train down. That? And he's isn't that outrageous? I it's mean, outrageous. I don't get that. And the other thing I don't get at the moment is um, they're going to make masks mandatory now in the UK in, in shops and in, in closed settings. We won't. You know, so again, there's a disconnect on the island of Ireland Why with are the we mask s- policy. I feel like the mask thing was so badly managed. At the start, it was like, nah, nah, masks are just going to give you more COVID because you're going to touch your face. And then they just seemed to get really belligerent about having been wrong about that and yeah. weren't able to say, actually, we were wrong. And it's fair enough to be wrong. It's a novel virus. Like, new, we have new data, but now people are confused and it's given, you know, strange presidents time to bed in their ideas about this being a conspiracy and yeah. now mask uptake is too low. There's probably several PhD theses in the psychology of masks in a way because it's obviously there's many issues around masks let's face it and uh, I think I, I mean I got it wrong myself back, back in February I was saying only wear a mask if you have symptoms which means you're coughing and sneezing there's no need to wear a mask outside that. Yeah. Now that was the case back then the WHO said that as well and the HSE because that, that was the, the guidelines. When it became asymptomatic I immediately said you got to wear masks now yeah. without symptoms. And that's when I changed my view of it, even though there wasn't science at that stage because mask science was very vague. You know, nobody was doing clinical trials with masks, you know. Yeah. And then really good stuff came out. MIT were probably the best place they could show the mask was trapping the droplets, which was fantastic. And now the evidence was clear that the mask will stop the virus spreading. So suddenly it became clear to me relatively early on, it was back in March even I was saying this, you know. And then gradually people catch up, I suppose, and then the thing begins to change. And now it's 99.9% certain that masks are good, you know, that they will protect us if we're both wearing them. Yeah. So that that all changed. And, And then it became a case of compliance. How do you convince people? Uh, the Asians got there first, obviously. They've been wearing them. I mean, they you know, in Japan, I've just realized Japan, it was part of their religious ceremonies to wear masks hundreds of years ago. So they, they were already... So it's much more in their culture. Much, exactly. Yeah. I want to talk to you for a second about UX design. So UX stands for user experience. And UX design is the experience you have when you're using an app or a website. So like for me... Pinterest, I find Pinterest app very poorly designed because the focus is on images. The UX should be constructed so that viewing the images is kind of easy and intuitive. But when you go on the Pinterest app, the images are really small and it's really annoying. So that is an example of UX design. If you are interested in learning more about UX design or maybe even changing your career because UX designers are very much in demand, the UX Design Institute has a course that is top class. One of the great things about the course is that you don't need any coding or previous experience to do the course and it's delivered through short videos that you can take at your own pace so it's not tied to any sort of schedule that you might not be able for. If you check out uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash basically and you see you put in the basically because that means that they know that I sent you and then I get kudos. So uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash basically to learn more about the course, to see if it's something that you want to know more about, you want to undertake, or you might want to, I don't know, change your career entirely. What's this about kind of under 16s and under 13s and all these sort of, are they um, are they kind of nonsensical? Are they arbitrary numbers plucked out of the sky or are children 
safe. Well, the good numbers, that that's really good now. Remember, we've got 12 million people who have this virus. Uh, there's, what, half a million deaths. And now the scientists look into that data because there's a massive amount of data there. The more people we have, the better for any situation in science. You know? And now it's wonderful for young people because they don't die, they don't get sick. I mean, that's really clear. So it's, it's an older person's disease, which is great, obviously. Well, not, not for the old people, obviously, but for the rest of the society. Yeah. Um, the risk factors, obesity is a massive one. So if you, in fact, I just saw a thing this morning, uh, probably 35% of, the, of Europeans have some kind of disease that puts them at risk. So it's very high, you know? Yeah. And if you're obese, it's like you're in your 80s. That, that's how serious it is in terms of risk of severe disease, you see. So even younger people then who have diabetes or heart disease, they're at a reasonably high risk. They're vulnerable. Most young people don't have those things, remember. So that's yeah. good. So as a group, it's safe. Now, they still get infected, though, remember. And they might spread it to someone who's vulnerable. That becomes the concern with young people more than themselves getting sick. It's more about getting infected, no symptoms, and then giving it to a vulnerable person. It could be an older person or some of these things. So th that's where the young person thing. And then having said that, there's still severe disease in some young people. It's not as if they're, 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 they're bulletproof either, you know, lower numbers, but they still have, some of them still have severe disease. So on opening up the schools, like if you have a teacher, no, close to retirement who might have an underlying condition like yep. obesity or whatever they need to be careful because they need to be careful precisely and that's the big concern for anybody in that situation who's vulnerable who's getting exposed to more people now again you might have the bubble idea one teacher one set of kids that, that lowers the risk because they aren't getting as exposed by meeting many people again yes, this will yeah. be in these guidelines you see. but teachers will have to wear masks Right, okay. And they may have to wear the N95 mask because remember the regular cotton mask, th there's some evidence it protects the wearer but not really, you know. Yeah. You need the clinical mask really for, for to make sure that the teacher won't pick up an infection. Now, can teachers teach with masks on? It's a tough one, isn't it? But they'll have to. They're going to have you know? to, yeah. I've, um, I was wearing like a homemade mask that I got but um, it was really flaring up my asthma and I couldn't breathe and then I was like hyperventilating having almost asthma attacks. So I've had to switch to those um disposable yeah. medical ones but which isn't probably great for single use but uh, I think that's fair enough Me lots of people can't wear them I mean there's all kinds of reasons with respiratory diseases and so yeah. on so that's that's the tough part of mask wearing anyway so what are your next what do you hope for in the next like the next couple of months what are you going to be looking out for obviously a vaccine you're looking at treatments with yeah. anti-inflammatories yeah, there's, there's there's two dreams now that we have. One is the vaccine, let's face it. Now, it, there's a chance it'll be in the autumn, you know, but my, when I talk to the experts, many are saying 2021, but late like, 2021 time frame. So, But they're stockpiling them already, are they? They are. Yeah, but they, they do that anyway with new vaccines, just in case it works, they get ready to roll it out. So they're stockpiling massive amounts of the Oxford and vaccine. And how are the Oxford vaccine, how are they testing it? Human volunteers, yeah. healthy well, what you do is the phase one is a safety test. You don't look for any efficacy. You just give the person the vaccine and see if they don't get sick, basically, from the vaccine. You know, because right. there's always a risk. Phase two is... Are these volunteers getting paid? Are so, they some of them do get paid. Yeah, yeah, You'd want to. That's yeah, a pretty big risk. Wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Students go for this all the time, by the way, for clinical, clinical trials. trials. Then you'll go into a group and see if you get an immune response to the vaccine. And what you're measuring there is the antibodies right. in the T-cells. Right. And then you tick that box, great. And then you say, right, it's working, at least in terms of stimulating the immune response. Yeah. Then you do your proper trial where you vaccinate maybe a thousand people or more. Still healthy people. Still healthy. And then let them loose in the community and ask, do they get infected or not? And you have a control group as well as you match. You and are those that. people who are let loose in the community, are they told to not wash their hands and not 
put on a mask. No, it's just natural. To just carry, go about your daily business. The trouble with this is you got to do the trial where the virus is. Okay. No, there wouldn't be any point in doing it in Ireland at the moment because it's very hard to get infected in Ireland. So you'd be doing it in the UK is a good spot. The US is the best now, by the way. So say if Johnson & Johnson, are they an Irish company? No, they're multinational. No. Okay, yeah, they're, so they're, they're multinational. Yeah. They're based where? They're in, in the US. Okay, so that's fine. That's where they're based. But they're, but they're doing trials in Brazil, in parts of Africa. They know this because you've got to do a trial where, the, where there's a risk of people getting infected. Remember, you have a control group as well that are matched. Let them loose and it might last a month or two. Bring them all back in again. How many got infected in those two groups? And of course, you're hoping that the ones with the, the vaccine, there's less infection. Now, the FDA have said they want 50% efficacy in the trial. So that means if you have the vaccine, you're half as likely to get infected compared to the, you know, the ones that aren't vaccinated. And then that means you've delivered on that end point, as they call this in the trial. That's happening at the moment. Then you can move to the next phase. The next phase is 30,000 people. Amazing as it may seem. So lots of tens of thousands. Now, again, you're trying to prove the efficacy there because there's more people. And how long does it go on for? That can be another month, two, three months. And that, that was in the old in the old days. It took six months to a year. Remember? Okay. So now it's faster. So now Moderna are there already. They're about to, they're they're planning on the thirty thousand patient trial. So are Oxford, you see. So they're ramping up to that now. So and that might take till October, November time. Now, with the best win in the world, then you might see an efficacy readout by November. And then you go, wow. Now these things can take time. How do you find thirty thousand people? It's not not easy, you know. So it's the, the logistics. Is yeah. the issue then you see so so that's the time frame we're in and and realistically it'll be next year for definite it'll early next year with everything going great now as with anything in life as you know Stephanie things go wrong you know yeah. and you can't plan for it like maybe they run out of supply or the supply chain breaks down or they can't recruit the people or the hospital shuts all these variables come in so there's always risk of something going wrong or delaying you know hence the optimistic view would be early next year but it could be longer because of all these unknowns and have you seen um, the stuff that I, I've had updates on the news on like a new swine flu has been found and a new like there are other things happening in the background that are not coronavirus so is there's this... no locusts that's the next thing that apparently there were on. locusts that's in right. Africa it's, it's the plagues you see it's, it's what's these the... five horsemen you're that's talking right. about the apocalypse that's right well, you see, there's always these infections. They're always cropping up, you know. And 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 black the the bubonic plague never went away. There was always pockets here and there. But now so, the bubonic plague has been found on the border between Mongolia and they, China. They found a case of it. They have now. The good news, you can treat that with antibiotics. Well, that's great. It's news, a, ba- but it's we a bacteria. Still don't need more pandemic. We don't need more. No, it's as if nature's playing a trick on us in a way, isn't it? You know? Well, I think we might be getting our comeuppance for the way we've treated nature. Um, okay, so finally, so we have our. So the reason that people less people are dying but more people are getting infected is because we are making great strides with how we are treating people. So is it still, like, do we have any prophylactic treatments where, like, we can give you this and then if you get infected it won't be too bad or... Well, well, the reason why this is so compelling in terms of medicine, shall we say, is all these different fronts that's being fought on, which you wouldn't normally get with the disease. You might try one front initially and the vaccine is one approach, Right. You've got to get ready if there isn't a vaccine. And even now, they've got to treat people in hospital, you see. So if you're, if you're in a hospital like Tallow or James's or whatever, sick person with COVID-19 comes in, how do you treat them? Can you, can you, you know, look after them and make sure they don't die? So they're always trying new approaches and new ways to try this, that, and the other. They look at the patients and realize things are happening, and that's giving rise to new treatments. So it's really changed now in the past six months. So now, an anticoagulant would be added in early to stop the blood clotting. 
That mightn't have been the case six months ago. Has blood clotting been a huge issue? Huge. That's that was the thing that was one of the most amazing. In fact, that maybe after asymptomatic spread, the fact that blood clots with this virus was the second big discovery. You see, because I heard a podcast about COVID toe people presenting with these like big swollen toes, almost like a cartoon, because they're all. Uh, well, if, if you talk to the doctors, I mean, literally again this morning, I was talking to one of the front line, one of my colleagues who's on the front line. They noticed some patients had like chill blains on their toes. Yeah. What the hell is that? I mean, even that viruses don't cause that. You know, they're scratching their heads. This is just observations. See, good doctors observe their patients closely, you see, and make notes and yeah. learn about them. And COVID toe is that the clots form in your toe. So they knew there was something funny about the blood, right? Secondly, just taking a blood sample from a COVID-19, the blood began to clot more quickly anyway. So they knew there was something funny here with clotting. And now the big studies are amazing. The autopsy, sadly, people who die, big autopsy clots everywhere. I mean, it's staggering in the lungs, in the kidneys, even in the brain. So if they treat people with anticoagulants to stop the clotting, I guess people are dying of the clots rather than anything else. They're dying of a stroke. Or have a heart attack, you know, because there's clots in the heart or their lungs are getting. One reason why the lungs aren't doing their job is all the little blood vessels are having clots in them and the oxygen can't go around the body, you know. So that's a big advance, I think. And, And again, it's tricky to treat clots because if you go too far, you get bleeds. Oh, yeah. And they can be damaging, you see. So it's not as, as simple it's as it delicate. seems. And some anti-clotting agents are better than others. They're trying heparin. They're trying various ones. And they are seeing some good signs with that one. So that's a good example of a, a medical advance. The second one is dexamethasone is the other big one that we think is really important. I, I worked on that as my, from a part of my PhD, to be honest, over 30 years ago. Okay. So it's a potent steroid. That's anti-inflammatory. We, we've known steroids of anti-inflammatory effects since the 1950s. What do steroids do? They stop your immune system from overreacting. Yeah, there's a subtype. There's different types of steroids. Like testosterone is a steroid, for instance, and right. estrogen, you know. But there's a subtype called corticoids or cortisol is a good example of it. They're anti-inflammatory. You make them when you're stressed, actually, partly to suppress any injuries you get. You know, it's an okay. evolutionary thing. And then someone in the 50s said, let's try this as a drug. And they, they took cortisol. And lo and behold, it was anti-inflammatory. And, and now they've given dexamethasone like a, a, a drug version of cortisol. And so it's not seen, what you take at the gym to like get gains. No, that's your testosterone. You know, oh, that's yeah, an grand, anabolic, that's anabolic, steroids. anabolic steroids. Yeah, they're similar though. And some of those steroids have anti, all steroids have anti-inflammatory effects to some extent. But the specialized ones, if you like, are based on so-called glucocorticoids. And dexamethasone is a drug version of that. And they noticed a 30% decrease in fatality with that drug. And it's a very safe drug. It's been used for decades, you see. So that's now added now that's to really the, sure. the cocktail of drugs. And when I had the... I was tested for COVID on St. Patrick's Day and I was told that I had a bit of pneumonia and they put me on steroids and I did an Instagram television at the time just about whatever and I look back at it now I'm so swollen yeah that's right like my whole head is like it's like a big circle I look like a moon that's the side effect you get fluid retention Ah, that's an unfortunate side effect of steroids actually and they have other side effects as well some people are on steroids long term for inflammatory diseases but they're risky because they have long term effects this is an acute use you know in other words you're dampening down the inflammation really quickly and saving the lungs basically so now I predict that's going to get better because there's other steroids prednisone is one Yeah, they'll, they'll tweak the dose and we'll see advances there again just to save patients who are severe you see and that's a great thing So you're over in Trinity fighting the fight what can we do to help you? Wear a mask Give me money No um, yeah. 
<laughs> Send no, got, donations in honestly, an envelope. We got a couple, let's give a plug for it to Science Foundation. Ireland gave us a pot of money there to fund our centre, which is fantastic, you know. So, um, yeah, well, everybody can play a part in this damn thing. I mean, if, if this disease goes away, I won't have to worry about it, will I? I'll, I'll go back to working on Parkinson's disease, which you work on anyway. Um, yeah, people keep doing what they're doing. And I think the, the biggest thing you can do now is keep wearing the masks. That's essential, number one. Avoid these crowded places. That's really important as well, because that's where you might pick it up there. What about shopping centres? Again, wear a mask when you go in and try to keep socially distanced. Don't be hanging around too long. You know, get in and out, basically, you know, and that, that'll stop you picking it up. And then you won't spread it to someone else, I suppose. So that's the trick. And how would you, what's your final word on going on holidays this year abroad? Stay in Ireland. 100%. Uh, two reasons. It's less risky than going abroad. For you, you might catch the virus yourself, remember. Secondly, you might catch it and bring it back and infect someone who's vulnerable. We don't want that either, you know. So saying that in the economy, spend your money that you've saved up. Have you saved much money, Stephanie, in the, in the past couple of months? I have, nothing actually. Spend it on, well, I have nothing to spend it on. I mean, I was buying groceries all the time, but... Um, I am going on a staycation and uh, I will spend my money locally and try not to care about the fact that I miss a bit of heat and sun. We all miss that, don't we? Yeah, maybe the sun might shine in August. What do you think? Oh, God. It usually shines when the schools go back. So <laughs> the schools right, need right. to go back yes, to give us good weather. Exactly. <laughs> Luke O'Neill, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. As ever, we are mixed by Alan Bennett and our graphic is by Kahlo Gara and our music is by Only Ruin. If you enjoyed this episode, please can you just tell one other person about it? Share it on your Instagram stories or just let me know if you enjoyed it, what you thought about it. Thank you very much. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.